Um, good afternoon, everyone, and good afternoon from Singapore, if you're tuning in from outside of Singapore. And welcome to session 16 of the Middle East Institute's Bridging the Gulf Public Education Series. My name is Clemens Che, and I will be moderating today's episode. And the past few sessions address highly interesting topics, including technology at the hatch, the UAE's food security strategy, uh, archaeological site uh, of Zubara in Qatar. So we had a long list of interesting themes and topics, and today marks the resumption of the series for this calendar year. And we are pleased to welcome Ms. Rumeita Abu Saidi, an Omani marine scientist and environmental activist working on sustainable solutions to climate change. I will further outline her distinguished profile shortly, but I will talk a bit more about today's topic. The topic for today's webinar, Gender and Climate Change in the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, is addressed by our guest speaker against the backdrop of this year's Conference of the Parties or COP28, which will be held in the UAE. The global climate crisis, as stated by the UN Women's Agency, is not gender neutral because women and girls experience the greatest impacts of this phenomenon. Last year's World Economic Forum released a global gender gap report, which found that it will take 115 years to achieve gender parity in the MENA region. So calling for greater inclusivity, the same report cited the example of the death of Masa Amini, which followed a previous round of water protests as a scenario where exclusion and climate change can destabilize societies. In this light, we are looking to hear from our guest speaker today, Ms. Rumeita Abu Saidi, on whether and how women's empowerment can be mainstreamed into this year's edition of the Climate Change Conference. We've seen the Emirati hosts launch a climate change and gender equality initiative earlier this month. And last week at Expo City Dubai, a youth-led event was held in a bid to mainstream youth participation at COP. Well, we have the right personality to talk about these issues, none other than Rumeita Abu Saidi herself, who is a member of the first ever Arab Youth Council on Climate Change. A bit more about Rumeita, she is the board director at the Environment Society of Oman, and she actively works with the authorities on sustainable diversification strategies in fruit production, having been heavily involved in the fisheries sector of the Sudan. Internationally, she has also advised the Biden administration on setting a climate resilience standard and also pushed for youth empowerment in the Arab League. Rumeida holds a Master in Public Administration from Harvard University, and she will be de delivering a presentation today, following which we will have a Q&A session, and I invite our viewers to send your burning questions into the chat box later on. Without further ado, let me now welcome Rumeita. Rumeita, the, the floor is yours. Thank you so much Clemens for that lovely introduction. It is an absolute honor to be here. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are uh, tuning in. Um, we will be talking about women and how they are the key to our climate future and then kind of focus a bit about um, um, if there is actually a link between gender and climate change. That's always the question, the burning question that a lot of people have as in what's the relation there. And then a bit diving into the global north versus global south context, the role of information in all of this, climate change and gender in practice. And that, that's where we'll be touching a bit upon uh, some examples in the region that is happening at the moment. And also kind of comparing, since we're talking about COP28 as well, the um, umbrella of uh, NDCs and what 
uh, the MENA countries and GCC countries are doing when it comes to gender and climate and some concluding thoughts and perhaps questions that I'm still trying to kind of come up with answers to and maybe you might be helping with some of your thoughts as well during the Q&A uh, in regards to those questions. Now we all know what climate change is about. It is one of the greatest global challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. It impacts various um, regions around, around the world, various generations. It has no, uh, it paints everyone with the same brush basically. So there's no uh, income group, no age, no gender that actually um, has not been impacted with the impacts of climate change. And based on the findings of the IPCC, which actually released a report just a little less than 24 hours ago, there's even a much more need to all for all of us to kind of come together to make sure that these impacts are mitigated and minimized as much as possible, uh, particularly focusing on developing countries, the poor who are disproportionately affected and consequently in the greatest need of adaptation strategies in the face of the variability when it comes to um, climate and the change and the extreme weather conditions that we're expecting that will only increase from now on. So there's no denying that fact is it actually impacts both men and women. Climate change doesn't really impact uh, just women or just men. We're all impacted by climate change. However, the issue is it is not gender neutral. That's the issue. Um, within the countries that I just talked about, the poorest, the most marginalized groups uh, who have the fewest opportunities to protect themselves mostly are women. Um, they're increasingly being seen as more vulnerable to men when it comes to impacts of climate change. And mainly if we look at it from a gender lens, it's because they represent uh, the majority of the world's poor and they're proportionately more dependent on uh, threatened natural resources as well. And the difference between men and women can also be seen in their differential roles when it comes to the household, to the community, to governments and responsibilities and decision-making as well. Uh, we can look at access to land uh, where um, even if we look at it historically in the MENA region, uh, women have less access or ownership of land than men. Uh, and as a result, less access to natural resources that allow them to cultivate that land and opportunities and needs to make sure those, for instance, opportunities and in businesses as well thrive. So we're seeing that there is a common divide just based on how society is structured. And worldwide, we see that women um, also have less access, specifically if we look at credits and finance, uh, agricultural inputs, um, they're not really involved in the decision-making structures. Uh, technology as well is very male-dominated in a lot of these parts of the world. Training extension services are mostly targeted towards uh, men because the per perception is men do hard work and women don't. In general, that is the view of the world when it comes to that. And as a result, that really impacts their uh, capacity as well uh, to adapt to climate change. Now, this is a, a quote from UN Women that says, women and girls experience the greatest impacts of climate change uh, because it amplifies uh, existing gender inequalities and that actually poses a, a unique threat to their livelihoods, health and safety. So if we look at it from that angle, you could actually make a connection that yes, there is a definitive somewhat um, relationship between climate and gender. And it's just not talk because there's a feminist agenda out there saying that there's everything, everything uh, women are impacted way differently than men. 
this is actually proof that yes, uh, women are actually or do get impacted differently. Um, just a bit on a few things that basically we're focusing on in terms of the impacts when it comes to that. We see that climate change affects water in all its uses, uh, including water for agriculture. It changes its availability, its demand, the way that we use it, and it makes it a much more riskier business. And we look at uh, more poor communities. Most women actually are given or tasked to provide water to the household. They're the ones that actually go and walk around miles and miles ahead to kind of fetch water. I'm sure for anyone who actually can Google search image of people kind of getting, like, carrying water, a lot of those images that you will actually see populating your search are of women actually carrying water. Um, and also we're seeing that climate change raises temperature and likely will increase both floods and droughts. And that impacts a lot of those tropical countries that are within that belt of the most impacted, uh, where statistics say that the majority of the poor reside. And what's very interesting as well, that there's a specific um, statistic that um, the UN has actually came out, and that's quite staggering, which says out of climate refugees in general, people who are escaping their particular uh, place of living because of climate disasters, 80%, 80% of that number are actually women and girls uh, and not men. Um, so that's something that, to actually keep in mind on as well. Uh, so basically what we have established here as a baseline is that women and men uh, perceive climate shocks and climate change differently. Um, and there is a need to kind of understand as well what sort of things, what sort of coping and adaptation mechanisms can we do to ensure that they are able to overcome them. So that really brings into account the need to actually use a gender lens when you are looking at implementation of these climate change uh, adaptation and mitigation measures as well, and paying special attention as well on not only the needs, but also the contributions of both men and women, uh, because there's also the painting picture of the damsel in distress where a lot of, and I'll actually give an example of how NDCs have been structured, where a lot of women have been painted with the fact that they're vulnerable and that's it, but not agents of change. So it's important to as well understand their contributions and how these gender responsive climate mitigating and adaptation measures not only address climate change, but also tries to reduce those gender inequalities and empower women as well. Um, a very interesting uh, thing is that um, a lot of people will say, well, women have assets too, as men do, uh, but obviously we have uh, as genders, two different types of assets. And this is a very interesting example that I tend to give a lot is generally, uh, men tend to hold agricultural assets or land or things that are not immediately liquid. Um, so as a result of the most ad direct adverse impacts of climate change, uh, we'll be impacting that asset specifically if we talk about land. Um, but then they are unable to kind of move that land basically because it's illiquid, illiquid right? Uh, when women's assets are actually smaller, but um, even though they're smaller in value, they're very liquid. I'll give you an example of 
Um, so if you're looking at very rural areas, they own livestock. That's very liquid. You could sell livestock immediately. Uh, another very, very prominent example, specifically in the MENA region, is jewelry. And that is the number one thing. I'm sure everyone who comes from the region can recollect a time uh, where a certain family member had to sell jewelry in order for her to um, save her family from specific financial burdens. So that's the general kind of way of how inequality within the household as well happens or inequity. And there's a need as well to kind of look into when we uh, talk about climate change and that uh, aspect, we're expecting more climate refugees, we're expecting more impacts to the household. And that is the first thing that would go. So how would we look into social protection programs that will be geared towards protecting women's assets during climatic shocks and not necessarily rendering them more uh, unable to kind of protect themselves because they have less assets. So it's not only an ecological crisis, but it's fundamentally a question of justice, prosperity, gender equality, and intrinsically it's linked to how um, we are influenced by structural inequality and discrimination and how policies come into account as well. Now, um, there's a lot of talk uh, when we talk a lot about the the first thing that people when it come into mind to make the connection between gender and climate change is to give examples of the poor and developing country uh, countries and the main reason behind that is because it generally impacts more of the poor countries than the rich ones just basically on geography and also the limited opportunities that these countries have to adapt to climate change, which actually brings the whole notion of the introduction of the loss and damage fund uh, as a result of the end of the negotiations of COP27, which will be, the mechanisms of it will be much more um, clear uh, in COP28. But also we're seeing that there is uh, a discussion that's happening specifically for non-poor countries, specifically we're talking about the GCC saying, we don't have that issue. Um, so this is just a poor developing country thing where emerging economies and rich countries don't have that issue. But I would actually argue and say, no, uh, it is not, uh, there's no divide when it comes to uh, uh, just richer countries having less of a gender uh, uh, issue when it comes to climate change versus developing countries. It's actually pretty much uh, a resistance there to accept that there is uh, a need to actually have a gender dimension when it comes to climate change policy because it impacts both. An example of this is uh, a research that was done specifically targeting the global north countries um, and looking at climate change and asking both men and women within uh, 11 developed nations on their concerns about climate change. And it was very clear that women were actually very much concerned because they knew that it would be they would be impacted first, uh, be it quitting their jobs and taking care of their family, be it losing assets, be it a lot of the ways that we are structuring society kind of puts that role on women and those who stay at home first, rather than those who actually go in uh, are more of the dominant um, gender, right? In this case, men. So in the seven of the 11 developed uh, nations from US, Canada, Germany, South Africa, South Korea, sorry, women were more likely to consider climate change a serious problem, be it it will harm them personally or change their lifestyle completely. 
And the answer basically from that um, survey was this is a problem that needs to be solved. And it's not only unique to developing countries, but also developed countries face the same thing. An example would be when asked uh, how serious a problem climate change is, uh, specifically for women in the US, they significantly said it is way more a major risk than men did, and that it, it was a very serious problem in comparison to somewhat a problem. Uh, Canadian and Australian women's, uh, women as well had the same concern. Um, so there is a clear divide as well in gender disparity when it comes to harm and personal views of harm related to climate change when it comes to this. So in short, it impacts all women and it impacts gender in general, uh, no matter what geographical location you are. The only reason we have more data when it comes to developing countries is because it's very prominent. They're the ones that are facing those um, impacts firsthand. Now, going on to the role of information, um, it's very uh, important to actually have climate information. And what's very interesting is that even when it comes to climate adaptation, uh, the information that is available to men is not equal to the same information that women have. Uh, the main re reason behind that is access to information as well changes your perception and responses. Uh, men are more likely to report having access to climate information, which might uh, probably kind of lower their risk averseness when it comes to issues like this, because they know that there's a formal process in place, be it from the government or be it from the structure of the nation and so on to kind of combat that when women are actually, because they're excluded from decision-making processes, um, tend to not have that information from formal sources. And in order to promote equal participation across both, you need to reach that information needs, needs to reach both genders um, quite equally in order for you to kind of reduce that risk averseness. And this actually kind of ties into the, um, how it negatively affects adaptation. We're seeing that men and women who are concerned about risk are less likely to take up new policies or technologies. And that lack of information or role of information plays a big role in order to allow specifically women who are kind of removed from these processes to be able to kind of take up those policies and technologies and also be active in the decision-making process as well. Uh, what's interesting is, yes, women are not more risk averse in general, but specifically when it comes to taking decisions, it has been empirically proven uh, that they do have some risk averseness. And the main reason behind that is there is a need to understand what's their tolerance of risk and how to improve, improve their capacity to understand it when they are far removed from the actual uh, policy making process. So it's quite important to kind of um, uh, frame it in a value sharing way in order for them to kind of take on that way. And that's why you also need to kind of look into policy from that angle. Um, but now, that we've established a bit of a baseline on this, uh, we're seeing that there is uh, evidence that uh, gender differentiated roles and responsibilities actually uh, cause differentiated vulnerabilities to the effects of climate change. And in order to analyze climate change policies and measures from the gender perspective and also raise awareness about possible implications, we need to kind of determine those gender dimensions. And these dimensions basically apply to all areas of climate protection, uh, be it energy supply, energy usage, mobility, agriculture, water supply, consumption. So these 
all the empirical research that is there has established that there are gender dimensions. But the one uh, key problem that we are facing in general is addressing gender dimensions of climate change uh, because uh, most of it is based on data available on uh, sex, so male or female, and not specifically on gender. So when we talk about gender here, we're referring to the socially constructed roles, the behaviors, expressions, the identities of community. And that uh, unfortunately kind of skews a bit of the results because there's a lack of gender um, uh, data, more really kind of a binary uh, male-female data that we uh, tend to use to kind of formulate these uh, processes as well. So using uh, this data, even though it's necessary in order for us to integrate gender into climate change research, into policy, into the measures that we do, uh, but there's a risk there that it might also reinforce the traditional gender roles that we have and the stereotypical uh, ideas that we have. And then these bring up as well questions as to how do we kind of overcome that as well? Um, because we have the evidence there that the gender plays a role as well. Um, and the question is, how do we understand the social construction of gender and the power relations that are there specifically if we talk about the GCC and the MENA region and how they interact with climate change? How do they play a role in climate policy as well? Um, and there are very interesting examples. Uh, we're seeing more and more countries who have increased their attention to gender, specifically if we look at the NDCs that have been submitted as part of the COP process. Uh, if we compare, uh, back in 2016, out of the 162 submitted uh, NDCs at that time, around 40% mentioned gender or women as keywords. Um, which showed that there was awareness there, uh, that there were women-specific considerations or gender-specific considerations that were relevant to climate change and action. But since then, uh, if we talk about 2021, which was when this um, report by the IUCN was done, uh, countries have altogether increased their attention to gender. So now uh, we're seeing uh, differing levels, obviously, but out of the uh, updated NDCs that were submitted around 896 of them, 78% mention one way or another, either women or gender. But uh, the issue here is we still have roughly a quarter of the NDCs that are entirely gender blind. And uh, I don't think it's a fun fact to anyone. Uh, a lot of the MENA countries are actually quite gender blind when it comes to the NDCs. And we only have three countries that have included it in uh, theirs. Uh, interestingly, these countries, only one is in the GCC, which is the UAE. Um, they actually, um, um, identify women as stakeholders, uh, where they highlight their efforts to uh, engage women in climate uh, decision-making in governance, uh, specifically showing the high representation of UAE women in climate and energy communities. And then you have Morocco. Morocco was actually the uh, first country since 2016 to actually uh, have a standalone gender objective that they wanted to um, uh, formulate and actually achieve. And that's also, at the back of them hosting COP uh, back then. So that made it uh, much more easier to kind of 
comprehend for the government. And the last one, which was uh, was just quite surprising for a lot of people when I tell them this is Lebanon. Uh, so it stated, uh, it's very interesting in their indices, they stated that they utilize the gender analysis thoroughly throughout their entire indices. So uh, this is quite remarkable. So what they did was really uh, analyze gender responsiveness in all of their climate related policies. And as a result of that, that's where the set of recommendations of gender integration and strategies actually came about, including the NDCs that they have. So um, it's quite remarkable. And they are actually tackling a lot of the adaptation and mitigation as well. Um, so moving on a bit, um, there's a need uh, to actually pay attention to gender issues that is perceived uh, specifically when we're looking at design and planning stage of climate change related activities. That is something that I know a lot of women within my community of climate advocates in the GCC are trying to do more and more of. Um, but unfortunately, um, gender issues tend to receive less um, attention during implementation. So, which resulted in a lot of the NDCs specifically in the GCC countries not mentioning them because they are aware of it when they design it, but when it comes to implementation and the final product, it tends to be missed completely. So there's a need uh, for also having like gender disaggregated data collection and monitoring, and that's very rare to happen, but there's a lot of efforts that are coming up within uh, the region, specifically with the UAE championing this and COP28, that we're expecting to see uh, pr probably all six GCC countries, all five remaining ones who don't mention women to actually be much more involved in the conversation. And hopefully the next iteration will uh, involve uh, the mention of women specifically using a gender lens. Um, but there's also a lot of challenges um, uh, much of the, uh, when we ask what are the consequences of this um, like issue, what do we learn uh, if we do this? Um, there's a lot of like um, conflation between gender and women and women are, uh, if we talk about gender, it's just women. And that kind of skews a lot of information specifically in a world where is more, uh, in a world that is more gender aware. Uh, that could be a struggle as well when we uh, talk about how we differentiate that from uh, just the binary way of looking at things. But also a question that kind of comes up, and these are a bunch of questions that uh, I had, are what are the consequences if we bring, bring men back into the conversation, into the analysis? Because most of the time, uh, and that's something that's very real in the region as well, whenever we talk about this, there's a lot of pushback on yeah, this is a women's issue, men are kind of not allowed in. And bringing in men kind of frustrates a lot of people because it's kind of repeating yourself as well. But um, I think it's very important to kind of bring men into the conversation as well. But also how do we avoid stepping into the trap of stereotyping and the whole traditional gender roles and responsibilities that is quite a major thing, and not only in the region, but in the world. What sort of data or research do we need to kind of transform that and how do we link that into climate change policy making? Um, so there's a lot of need, a lot of questions that are coming up on the need to kind of get more uh, women as active participants in climate action and solutions. Uh, an example would be how the NDCs in generally are formed. If we look at the 
keywords of women and gender, we see that the women are basically um, looked at into four ways. So uh, one key way is that they are vulnerable, um, a lot of vulnerability there, that they are either or beneficiaries as well of the services or the funding that they receive from these policies. Seldom do we find them uh, mentioned as stakeholders or as agents of change. And that's where um, there's a lot of reframing that is needed to be done specifically in the region where women are agents of change and they can actually make the impact as well. Uh, in addition to kind of getting more and more representation as well within that decision-making um, um, space. I'll jump on a bit on quickly, uh, just have two a couple of slides before I open it up for q and uh, An example was uh, Cyclone Shaheen that hit Oman uh, back in 2021. Uh, this was a super cyclone um, that was then, uh, it was actually made history because it was the north, the cyclone that hit the most northern part of Oman and the Arabian Peninsula history. And that really kind of came with a lot of repercussions on uh, the coast, specifically uh, affecting agriculture, a lot of floods. Uh, there was a lot of uh, mortality as well as a result of that. And uh, an example of a live example that a nationwide policy would have helped in uh, mitigating the impacts using a gender lens would be simply uh, instructing or encouraging um, teaching swimming in schools. Um, a lot of women were actually impacted because they were unable to swim in the face of the floods and had to wait for the men to kind of come back and do that. And that actually caused a lot of strain in the support services that were available. Uh, and we have live examples of a few women as well who uh, learned swimming and were able to save their entire families kind of as a result of that. So a simple thing that we might look and disregard because society tells you not to, uh, but would have helped a lot in kind of alleviating a lot of those first responses that you do when it comes to cyclones. Another very interesting example when we look at systematic examples is the UAE and their climate change and gender equality initiative. Uh, this was actually launched back in March, um, of, uh, well, not back, back of, two weeks ago. Um, and what's interesting as well, that they actually have a gender balance council uh, that was formed back in 2015 that is more and more actively trying to kind of relate the climate change lens with their work in the gender balance council. And it actually has support from all the higher up um, to Sheikha uh, Fatma bint Mubarak, who is, as she is known as the mother of the nation. And there's a lot of uh, work with this initiatives where they're aiming at enhancing the level of awareness, uh, specifically connecting between gender and climate change specifically. And most importantly is what we should ex be expecting in COP28. Uh, we know from Clemens's remarks that it's going to be putting gender equality at the heart of the climate action and the entire COP process. Um, I know for a fact that the uh, at least regional team here is encouraging all of the uh, Middle Eastern countries to kind of make sure that they have strong women representation, specifically in the negotiation table and not in the side events. And the expectation is that the COP28 presidency will be calling and rallying parties as well to identify ambitious gender deliverables for the meeting that's going to be happening uh, end of this year. So in general, there's no way to achieve any of this vision without a fully inclusive approach 
that empowers all of us, right? Um, and we need to kind of have the entire community uh, viewed as agents of change in order for us to kind of move things forward or else we will be stuck with the status quo and that is not okay for any of us because we're expecting more and more extreme events, more impacts on climate change, specifically in a region that is expected to be impacted the most. So I think there are initiatives there, but collectively we can definitely do more. And on that note, I will open it up for questions. Thank you, Rometha, for a comprehensive presentation. Um, of course, now we will open it up to the floor for questions and you can type your burning questions into the chat box, which will then be read out to our speaker for today. Um, to kick off, please let me throw in one or two questions, if I may, on Rumeta's presentation. Um, and it was an intriguing one because there was a lot of uh, food for thought and different you know, aspects of, of climate change and gender that, that we had to think about. My first question really is about information and you cover that in, in, a, in a few slides. Climate information, as you say, you know, is really essential for adaptation. And I wanted to ask, you know, in, in the GCC, you know, is there some kind of coordination for information sharing or data sharing, which would then obviously facilitate, you know, the initiatives that are being implemented or put out or roll out. That's my first question. And, and the second question, you talked about how women's assets are often sold first to cope with climatic shocks. So my question is, are there examples of social protection schemes in the region that you know, help to prevent this or even mitigate this? So those are two of my questions before we carry on with, with those from the floor. Thank you, Rometha. Thank you. Um, so the first question is a coordinated effort um, um, at the moment, it's only uh, you can only see it in the negotiations. So there's an entire Arab uh, block that kind of really provide information and kind of use that. Unfortunately for us, uh, gender is yet to catch up when it comes to that in information sharing and data sharing. Um, but the uh, mechanism is there already. The GCC already has um, a sort of uh, mechanism as well within the uh, ministries of environment or authorities of environment to kind of share information when it comes to climate change related issues. Um, but the, the issue that we're, I think everyone is grappling with is the uh, data itself is very dis fragmented. And in order for you to collect the data into one place, um, it's proven a bit difficult specifically when we talk about, for instance, Kuwait, Oman, uh, a bit uh, when it comes to Bahrain, where the information is scattered everywhere and they don't have a, a central repository for that. We know that UAE and Saudi Arabia have been very active in kind of making sure that they consolidate as much data as possible within one place. So uh, we're hoping that those best practices are going to be passed on when it comes to that. Uh, answering your second question, uh, social protection programs, not necessarily protection, but it's more uh, awareness on how you can make better money or how can you invest your money. So there's more financial literacy programs that are coming up in various parts of the GCC specifically, where you can use that gold in order for you to kind of invest or don't buy proper jewelry. You can buy blocks of gold and invest it in something. And I'll give you a very recent example in Armada that has happened where they specifically targeted women uh, because according to data, um, they have the most disposable income. 
because the majority of women either uh, live live within the household that is collect collectively and she's taking care of, so she has way more uh, disposable income as a result of how society is structured. Um, there was an IPO that was out um, for an uh, energy company here in Oman, and they actually really specifically targeted women saying, you could actually invest and make X amount from your investment in this amount of time if you're looking for money. So it was very effective uh, in getting way more women um, investing in that IPO. And actually today, a lot of them are getting their returns back because they did just one-time investments uh, and they did quite phenomenally well. So I know that there are more financial literacy programs focusing on that. But when it comes to social protection programs, unfortunately, uh, that gender lens uh, with climate is yet to kind of catch up. Thank you, Rumaitha. And I think we had a we had a comment as you as you went along with your answer, saying that you know Arabic is a gendered language as well, so information flows and equal distribution uh, tend to be affected by by this as well. And I think you would agree, and and I would agree as well. Uh, but we'll come back to this because there is a wider question of whether it's culture, you know, and whether you know this would have an impact on the workforce and how gendered employment patterns are. But we'll we'll come back to that. But the same person who made this comment, Elizabeth, from, from our audience today, um, she, she's asking for your views on um, women health practitioners. And she raised this in, in the context of the differences in physiology, which put women more at risk from heat waves because they have higher core temperatures due to their body composition. So um, I think her main question and the main point, she, she wrote a pretty lengthy uh, para here, and is, is that, you know, there is an urgency to have more equality in, in, in the number of women health practitioners that we hire. And what is the situation in the Gulf where female doctors in general, uh, you know, are more scarce in, 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 in conservative society? So she wanted to hear your thoughts on, on that, on the healthcare sector. Thank you. Sure. So I'm not a, an expert when it comes to the healthcare sector. So I'll... Uh... Uh, please consider this as just a view, but not um, data driven or anything uh, in that regard. Um, yes, uh, there is a lot of um, attention being uh, made specifically for, like I could give you an example of Saudi Arabia and Oman specifically when they had the floods uh, that really led to a lot of uh, uh, disconnections with the power and grid uh, there was a lot of attention being uh, paid to make sure that the women in your household are able to kind of uh, are taken care of. And the, the question uh, there was kind of more on make sure that they're not uh, really at the risk of heat strokes more than men, because apparently, uh, like just on the mere fact that men can actually just go and swim in the flood and come back in comparison, um, made it quite difficult when it comes to that. In terms of the availability of way way more women practitioners, I agree 100%. I know that there is a big initiative actually with the American CDC and the ministries of health of the GCC to kind of encourage more awareness and actually even provide scholarships for um, women health studies for uh, women, female doctors and fellowships and in that regard. Um, from my personal experience, I've seen, like I could tell you from my personal experience that in my uh, interactions with the Omani Ministry of Health, the majority of the ones who actually 
are in the decision-making uh, table are actually women. And uh, my, uh, so a very funny anecdote, I just came from Stockholm and my taxi driver uh, who works in the Ministry of Health as well as he part-times as a taxi driver was telling me that all the women in the Ministry of Health uh, are like big bosses and they make all the decisions and I am the one that is to blame for anything. And I actually laughed. I was like, well, isn't it good that you're actually having more women uh, in those tables because then they can actually make uh, impacts and changes there. So that's a bit on my views, but yes, definitely we need more. We need to encourage more women to be doctors uh, and to be healthcare uh, practitioners as well, because there's a much more need specifically when it comes to conservative societies. Thank you, Rumetha, and I hope that answers your question, Elizabeth. We got another question from my colleague Asif Shuja, who's a senior research fellow here at the Institute. And uh, his question is about leadership because you know he, he says his comment is that it's enlightening to know that the GCC has moved to fill up the gender gap in climate change sphere led by the UAE. But considering that all the rulers of the GCC are males, what more would you suggest to compensate this gender imbalance uh, in the decision-making process? Because I think, you know, during your slides, you also mentioned that women, you know, that the level of uh, hesitation and, and they are risk, more risk adverse in taking decisions. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how you consider this in, in this, this wider context of uh, leadership. Sure, so when it comes to leadership, there's a, an, a lot of lack when it comes to more women in the decision-making table. I think the best example is exactly what you mentioned with the UAE since 2015 and having that gender balance council really encouraged a lot of corporations and even uh, government entities to kind of look into, do you actually have clear representation? Um, I think the, the immediate need at the moment is to actually have more women in the corporate world and corporates, um, specifically in boards representing the interests of not only uh, their shareholders, but a lot of these. Uh, and the main reason I'm tack tackling corporates here in the GCC is based on how the uh, business world is structured, you have a lot of government-owned companies. Um, and for that, you actually do have an influence when it comes to decision-making and policy. So I, I think there's a major need to kind of get more women on boards, I know that there are uh, a lot of initiatives at the moment. One particular one that's very interesting in the region is called diversity on boards. Um, and what they do is like, if you are a capable woman who has X amount of qualification that you think you're capable of serving on a board, just reach out to them and they'll try their level best to offer you the training that you need. Uh, make sure that you have a proper board bio and highlighting all your key um, uh, experiences and make sure that they advocate for you in order for you to reach that seat. So you are seeing, a, and this is a grassroots initiative that started with two uh, Bahraini siblings that just wanted to kind of see a difference uh, in making things um, way more kind of inclusive as well. So I think that is one way. Another way is also uh, to ensure that um, we build a lot more self-confidence and um, encourage more uncomfortable conversations. I know that seems very like vague, but I think for a lot of us within the societies that we grew up in, uh, we tend to uh, we tend to take whatever your parents say or whatever the senior in the family says as gold, and that's it. 
you don't kind of have that conversation as well. And I think we need to kind of encourage those conversations to be had in order for those views of women as well to kind of be uh, taken aboard as well. But I think the number one thing is we need more women on boards. Uh, we need more uh, women to kind of also speak out on their struggles. It's very fascinating that for every single woman who is who reaches a specific position in in not only society but at work, face the same problems when it comes to discrimination and misogyny and so on. And people just assume that it's themselves. I think we need to build a more uh, community of these women who are able to kind of shake things up as well. Thank you, Rumetha. Uh, two questions from our mutual friend and also my colleague, uh, Aisha Sarihi, who's a research fellow with us at MEI. Uh, her first question is about, you know, the, the portion of female employment. And she says that according to IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, uh, there is an increasing share of female employment in the sustainable energy sector. How is the situation looking like in the Gulf? That's the first question. And the second question, which is also uh, something that I wanted to ask, is about employment patterns, which remain highly gendered and that disparities still persist. So is this more of the deep-rooted culture, patriarchal culture, or is it a question of competence? I think that's the two questions that we have for you. All right, so the first question is, yes, there's an uptake of a lot of more women in renewable energy and the climate and environment and sustainability space all over the board, uh, not only in the GCC, but across the world. We're seeing an uptake of more women there. Main reason behind that is there's an interesting study that actually connected the dots and said that's because taking care of the environment and being sustainable is considered more feminine. So it makes the decision maker's mind easier to kind of accept that a woman should do that position. And I hope that as a result of that, we're seeing, we will be seeing more chief sustainability officers who are women, because at the moment, the majority are actually men. Uh, but with this uptake, I'm hoping that that will change things for the better. Um, answering the second question, which was, uh, yeah, um, it's actually two things. Uh, first of all, policies. Unfortunately, in the GCC, um, governments are still interviewing uh, job applicants and job occupancy uh, um, openings uh, that's very gendered, where they specify the gender that they want to hire. Um, and even though in all uh, six countries, it's apparently against the law, the statute says that there's no difference between a man and a woman. Uh, but it actually happens. We had a very interesting case in Oman um, where a, a specific uh, um, graduate of, I think it was chemistry or engineering that actually took the government to court stating that statute and saying, but you, inter you actually are asking for a male when I am supposed to not have a difference and I can actually compete for their job. Uh, she won the case. And uh, right now, the public prosecution actually tells women that if you think that this law, like you can utilize this law to your advantage if you would want to. Uh, so they make it very public as well and very uh, clear there. But also you have the societal aspect as well, uh, where you have women who are very capable, uh, you have who have engineering backgrounds and so on, but choose um, not to go and 
to the field, for instance. And so you have that societal structure as well, where women themselves believe that they shouldn't be doing this because she's a woman. But also you have the other aspect where it's the family that tells them you shouldn't be doing this job and you should have an office job, for instance, and so on. Or you should not be working in the capital and should you, you should just uh, remain in your rural area. So it's kind of a double edged sword. And there's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to that uh, specific angle of how do you make sure that you have more uh, women participating in the job force, specifically when you have a lot of the higher education graduates, majority of them being women. Um, so how do you reconcile that? Uh, I think the government at the end of the day and the system itself is going to collapse on itself. That's my reading of the situation because they won't have enough uh, people and they will actually have to attract women in very creative ways to actually get the job as well. Thank you, Rumeta. And running on the back of your response on, on this uh, policy complications that we face in the GCC, uh, and I, we do have a couple more questions from the floor, but let me take one step further to ask you, you know, you mentioned that there were only three NDCs that included gender in the MENA region, and one of, one of which is, is, is from the UAE. So what happened to the rest of the Gulf states? I mean, I mean, probably you could say it, I'll explain from an Omani point of view, because what happened to the Omani policy uh, discussion that led up to why or why didn't they not put gender in their own NDC? So I would tell you, Oman is very gender blind in the way that it does things um, in general. They assume that they don't have any discrimination between gender in general, uh, which is why it kind of fell through the cracks. When you ask them, um, it's very interesting. Um, the UN representation of Oman to the UN are pretty much the only entity that advocates for women, that we are doing a lot for women, when the majority actually don't even assume that it is actually a problem. Um, and bringing that discussion into uh, gender, the only reason now there's an uptake on this is because you have a champion in the UAE. Uh, and for a lot of GCC countries, they just follow most of the time um, as a, because they see that there's a momentum there, there's an important way of actually doing things. Another uh, interesting, um, thing is as well, uh, if you look at sustainability in general, um, there's more momentum when it comes to making sure that social aspect of the ESG and so on really looks into uh, the gender play as well. And how do you train, for instance, women in your um, entity versus men? Are women getting more of these opportunities versus men and so on? That is bringing that discussion into light. I know for a fact, that Oman is going to be including women in there uh, because the global stock take is going to finish in COP28. So we're expecting new NDCs, hopefully. Um, so that they will be including women into their discussion uh, now. And also from an Omani perspective, um, if we talk about 2016 and 2021, a lot of these NDCs were submitted way before the new administration of uh, the new Sultan coming in. And the discussion when it comes to gender has really changed because you have a first lady or the sultana who is the wife of the sultan who's really kind of pushing that social aspect of women and women's existence within the community way more and it's way more visible. So it just becomes a no brainer that you need to include that as well. So there's various momentums there, but as to why it dropped, I would definitely say we're 
as a country very gender blind and assume that we're all the same and don't have issues. <laughs> yeah, well, there's optimism nevertheless, and hopefully uh, people will rather take the driver's seat rather than wait for, for the UAE to champion it. Um, so we have another question and a more, I guess, a more technical question on project planning, which you, you covered in your presentation. And this is from my colleague, uh, Georgi Bustin, who is a visiting research professor here at MEI. His question is, is there gender disaggregated data on the effect of climate change on life expectancy in the most exposed countries? Um, I can say yes, there is, uh, not gender, unfortunately. Uh, it's mostly uh, sex, so male, female. You have that information, but when it comes to gender, I cannot verify. I can search, but I'm not sure if there is um, data. Uh, interestingly, when it comes to a lot of uh, these impacted, not specifically countries, but if you look at more detailed when it comes to corporations in these countries, um, if they are compliant to the GRI, for instance, um, um, reporting system, they will have actually gender and equal opportunity metrics there that kind of specify those information. So you might have more information when it comes to corporates uh, and those entities that are compliant with the GRI versus countries in general. Thank you, Rumita, and I hope that answers your question, Georgi. Uh, another question from the floor from Valerie is about uh, what kind of professional skills do we need for the women need to gain access to climate change and sustainability jobs, if any? Wow. Um, I think um, the most important thing would be definitely technical. Um, no, and, uh, at least from my perspective and being in this field for a very long time and dealing with, I've seen a lot of women who are very like switched on when it comes to the technical know-how more than the men would, or kind of find a lot of the causation and correlation for a lot of things. So the technical know-how is very important. Um, most important thing is if you're looking at sustainability, what are the uh, various ways that you could come up with a strategy? So a lot of the business acumen per business, um, also understanding what the GRI, what sort of reporting system that you need and the know-how there, uh, but also like going on to soft skills and people skills is very important. So self-confidence, being able to present rights, being able to frame things in the right way is very important. Uh, specifically if you're targeting jobs in companies, because uh, unfortunately, and this is not only not gender related at all, but it's just the, how the world works and why we're still stuck at COP28 without any resolution when it comes to protecting the earth. Uh, there's a very slow momentum of picking up um, when it comes to sustainability and its importance into the values of the business. So connecting us, uh, connecting that to the business need would be very much important to ensure that you can uh, do the job. So I think those are like from the top of my head things that you need to know. Thank you, Rumeta. And one final question to wrap up our Q&A segment for today. And, and that will be coming back to me. And uh, you mentioned in, in towards the conclusion of your presentation that you asked the question, can we bring men back in to our analysis of the gendered dimensions of climate change? And, and this got me thinking because, you know, when Kuwait gave women the right to vote and to the right to run for office in 2005, it also needed, you know, 
and all gender support, let's just say, you know, the, both men and women supported the cause back in that. So I wanted to hear your views on, on this question that you've been asking yourself anyway. So what are your views so far on, on this, the fact that should we bring men back into the question? I think it's very important um, for a lot of women pursuing what they pursue. I think it would be it would be double the work and way more difficult if you don't have male allies. And I, as I have progressed, I've realized the importance of having a male ally with you to make sure that things move forward. Uh, without that male ally, sometimes it's quite difficult to kind of navigate situations that are quite easy and quite simple, but you are unable to kind of move because of who you are as a gender, right, or as a woman. So I think it's very important to bring men into the conversation. However, uh, we need to be very cognizant as well on the value that they bring. Um, the issue of the discussion and why I have this question in mind is can we bring men into the conversation is for most of the time, men, most of the men are quite disruptors and kind of change the entire mission or objective of why we're bringing them into the conversation. And uh, that kind of defeats the purpose. So we need to be very well aware on what sort of tools do we use to bring men into the conversation, but make sure that we achieve that goal and not really move it towards uh, the dominance of men. And naturally we follow because even subconsciously that's how we are structured or that's how we have been used to. Um, so that's the fear there. But I think it's quite important to kind of bring that perspective in for them to really understand why this is an issue and how we can actually move forward together and make sure that when you are in the decision-making table as well, that they will support you or reiterate your points that you mentioned or give you the space to kind of talk about the issue because most of the time, many women tend to not have that uh, opportunity. Thank you, Romita. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you for delivering that fantastic presentation and for answering the questions that we have from our audience. And also thank you to the audience for raising these questions. I think all very relevant ones. And I hope Meta enjoyed them as much as I did asking these questions as well. So thank you everyone. We hope to see you on the next MEI event, whether it's virtual or in person. And we'd like to thank Meta again for joining us today and taking the time off. Thanks. Thank you everyone. It was a pleasure.